Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, that operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his much-anticipated and equally brilliant book, Transformations of Tradition, Islamic Law in Colonial Modernity, Junaid Qadri explores the productive tensions, fissures, and creative interpretive projects enabled by the drive to defend Muslim traditionalism under the looming shadows of colonial modernity. By focusing on the thought and career of the towering 20th century Egyptian scholar Bakhit al-Muti'i, Qadri interrogates ways in which new technologies like the telescope and the telegraph interacted with traditional norms like moon sighting for announcing the beginning of Ramadan and Eid to generate vexing yet fascinating conundrums of normative knowledge and practice for traditionalist scholars like Bakhit. Much of this book interrogates the hermeneutical strategies, tussles of religious authority and new conceptions of religion that went into attempted resolutions of such novel conundrums. While maintaining normative fidelity to the tradition, Bakhit also transformed the tradition in indelible ways, Qadri argues. This engaging and provocative book will interest scholars from multiple fields, and spark great conversations in the cross in the classroom as well. Here now is my conversation with Professor Junaid Qadri. Uh, welcome, uh, Junaid, to the New Books Network. Uh, really a pleasure to have you here, uh, and really looking forward to discussing uh, this much anticipated book. And really has lived up to and exceeded uh, uh, its anticipation. So, uh, really congratulations on this very finely grained uh, text, which uh, really combines intellectual history. Uh, philological studies and you know methods uh, and uh, theories and methods and history religious studies anthropology uh, quite quite masterfully so uh, congrats on this great achievement uh, we have a tradition of the new books network uh, Junaid, that our first question is uh, biographical uh, could you share a bit with our listeners your journey how you became a scholar of islam Sure. So first of all, let me thank you for uh, arranging this and having me on. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I know I've, I've listened to a bunch of your conversations before uh, and others on and the new books in Islamic studies. So I'm looking forward to to um, to talking with you. Um, so in terms of my own sort of uh, kind of background, I guess there are a couple of strands that I would want to um, kind of uh, bring to people's attention, which I think really um, impact and influence my uh, choices in in, stud- in, take- in going into Islamic studies, uh, and and even kind of the particular topics that I've decided to sort of take up or that I have up to now taken up. Um, so I think uh, there's one kind of strand that's that's a bit of a circuit, uh, circuitous route, uh, uh, which is. Uh, basically, uh, I think I used to think was very, uh, 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 
unorthodox, but I'm finding when I speak to colleagues more and more often that this is actually uh, a, a kind of trajectory that many people have have also taken up. And that is, uh, um, I mean, uh, for my undergraduate degree, um, I uh, initially enrolled in um, engineering programs and then eventually a computer science program. Um, and then I suppose uh, feeling somewhat um, dissatisfied with that, or at least uh, not very terribly well suited to it, I started to uh, kind of open up uh, horizons a bit and start to think about the humanities and found myself uh, also in a um, in a double degree doing a uh, in a philosophy department. Uh, so there's a sort of um, uh, uh, kind of roundabout way that I got into the humanities. Um, and then uh, in terms of Islamic studies, I think uh, this kind of opening in philosophy allowed me to uh, pursue thoughts and ideas that I had that actually even proceed. And this is another strand I guess I would want to draw attention to that actually precede my um, uh, 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 my undergraduate uh, career. Uh, and that is, you know, that has a lot to do with my own kind of uh, uh, identity. Um, it has a lot to do with being uh, a Muslim uh, in the West and uh, growing up in, in Canada, uh, a Muslim minority. But it also had a lot to do with the particular uh, sort of family formation uh, in which religion was a really central part of what it meant to be part of our family. Um and related to that, um, knowledge was a really important part. And I'm sure this is not, you know, out of the ordinary for many people, but the kind of confluence of those two things together really um, always had me sort of um, thinking about questions, challenges about being uh, Muslim in a different kind of context than is historically the case. Um, and, you know, those were very incipient thoughts. Those were, of course, very kind of preliminary rudimentary thoughts. Um, but moving then into this philosophy uh, degree allowed me some opportunity to pursue those. And so rather than pursue what I, um, you know, what many of my colleagues in that department pursued uh, in terms of you know, very current debates in 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 analytical and continental philosophy. Um, I was really interested in questions of ethics, and I was really interested in questions about uh, kind of the cross cultural, uh, the potential for cross cultural discussion uh, 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 in terms of ethics, um, and so. Uh, so that was, I ended up also doing a master's in that department. And then, I mean, so you can see, I hope that uh, I started moving into the Islamic studies world already in that phase. Uh, and then I decided when I decided to go on to do a PhD, it was sort of a natural move to move into a, uh, um, a program in Islamic studies. So I went to um, uh, McGill, to the Institute of Islamic Studies. Uh, that seemed like a very natural progression, a very natural extension of the sort of humanities training that I, that I already had, with the kind of difference that one of the reasons I wanted to move into Islamic studies is basically to be able to kind of provide myself with some historical depth, some historical perspective that went beyond um, uh, my, you know, my kind of like very immediate questions that I, that, 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 that came out from my own experience. So try to think about these questions, but in a larger kind of historical timeline. Um, 
yeah, that's what I would say, I think. Terrific. Um, so, Janelle, I thought maybe as a first question to sort of prepare listeners um, uh, before we get into some of the specifics and, uh, you know, more uh, in-depth into this book, I thought maybe a good place to start. Often that is the case with many books, and in this case, I think it is, uh, to reflect a bit on the title of the book, uh, Transformations of uh, Tradition. And you do a lot of that in the introduction and really all the chapters. But I was wondering if you could reflect a bit uh, and tell listeners a bit about what you have in mind when it comes to this idea of transformations of tradition uh, and how it connects to the main argument that you try to pursue in this book. And then at a more sort of uh, 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 factual level, I thought it might be useful uh, from the get-go to introduce lis- listeners to the sort of central protagonist of your narrative, not the only actor, you engage with a number of different actors, but the one central uh, protagonist, uh, Bakhit al-Muti'i, and uh, his central uh, text, uh, Al-Irshad, uh, that uh, really... Uh, anchors the project in some way. So maybe you could introduce those two also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So maybe I'll start with the second half first and then lead into the discussions about the title. Um, And I think, uh, you know, a a helpful way to to think about, I mean, maybe I'll just give you the kind of sort of a general biography first. So uh, Mohammed Bakhit was born in 1854. He um, he's born in a village in Upper Egypt. Uh, and but very quickly, very early in his life, moves on to uh, moves on to Cairo in order to pursue studies at the Azhar, the famous kind of institution of learning in Egypt. Um, and he really, I think, thereafter can be seen to be someone who's very closely linked to the Azhar. He makes a career for himself after his graduation. Makes a career for himself. Um, uh, by taking up a, a series of judgeships across the country, but then also on a parallel level, uh, has a, um, a kind of very prolific career writing and then also teaching at the Azhar and affiliated institutions. Um, uh, what he's most prominently known for is that he was appointed Mufti of Egypt. Um, in 1914, and he served in that position until 1920. Uh, and then, you know, he had a kind of re- really active life after his muftiship uh, up until his death in 1935. So, I, I mean, the, the two things that I would want to kind of draw out in this biography is that this is a really prominent person in the uh, kind of Azhari world, um, but he's also a prominent person on a kind of more global level, um, on a lo- more global scale. So many of the comments on his life have to do with his kind of wide reach in different places of the Muslim world as a result of the fatwas that he issues or a result of the commentaries that he writes. So many people found him to be a sort of expert jurist who uh, was really, um, uh, you know, an important point of reference. Um, uh, the other aspect, and we can talk a little bit more about this uh, um, as we go as we go further into into the discussion, um, is that he was someone who had a complicated relationship with uh, with uh, what is known in the literature as the reformist movement, and I have in mind here uh, uh, key figures like uh, Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Rida. Um, I can say a little bit more later about the nature of his relationship, but you know, in general, it's a it's a it's a really a relationship of opposition. Um, so I discovered Bahit because I, when I enrolled in a kind of 
degree in Islamic studies and I knew that I wanted to pursue something in Islamic law. Um, I was sort of casting around for a uh, for a topic. Uh, this was early on in my under, in my graduate in my PhD uh, 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 program. <clears throat> And in doing so, I started looking at some recent works on Islamic law, I mean, some recent works in fiqh, and um, I picked up one which was a uh, uh, an edition of the Muhtasar al-Quduri, which is a very famous teaching text, uh, a very famous uh, uh, te- teaching text in the Hanafi school. Um, uh, but it was preceded by this introduction, and it was a South Asian print, and uh, that's a, I think speaks to the kind of global reach of Bakhit a little bit. Um, and in this introduction, there's a discussion of Bakhit, uh, or rather, there's a discussion of the issues of ijtihad and taqlid, and Bakhit sort of figures in rather prominently in this discussion. Um, he has a particular view of ijtihad. Um, and this is something that I think the editor wanted to highlight and so did highlight. Um, now, what struck me about this, number one, is that uh, this is not a person that I had up until then known anything about. He's someone who's not really well discussed in the secondary scholarship. There are sort of uh, uh, there are there are some instances in which he kind of appears and he appears in a, in a very particular form. To, uh, to kind of uh, um, push forward uh, author's arguments. But I think for the most part, he was be, who would be relatively unknown in secondary literature. And yet this was someone who was widely known as a Hanafi scholar, as a Hanafi jurist, um, um, you know, as far away as, as South Asia, but then was really kind of prominent when I started to dig a little bit more, was really prominent in Egypt itself. And so I found this to be an interesting case of someone who is worthy of studying. And so I, I found myself heading off to Cairo to do some research and uh, realizing or, or, uh, that his library um, was housed now in the current Maktabat al-Azhar, the Azhar library. Um, and his, you know, his, his basically all, all of his books were inherited by this library and are marked uh, in the catalog with his name so that we know that these kind of belong to him. And then when you take at the books themselves, you see his ownership stamps and other ways of, uh, of figuring out that he actually did uh, have them. Um, so, so that's how I got to know a little bit more about him. Maybe I'll say a, a little bit about the main text that I'm uh, interested in here, just as a way of introduction. Um, this is the Irshad Ahl al-Milla ila Ithbat al-Hilla, which is basically a text um, that responds to, I mean, uh, that responds to a very particular question, a very particular incident that occurred uh, in uh, 1910 uh, when um, the the kind of Egyptian authorities received a report of a uh, of of a sighting of the moon of Ramadan. So. Many of your listeners will know this, of course, but uh, Ramadan is declared by is is you know the 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 Hijri calendar is a lunar calendar, and Ramadan is declared based upon the phase of the moon, and so a sighting of the moon is thought to be an important uh, uh, way to signify the onset of Ramadan and then also the end of Ramadan, um, uh, and every month, in fact. 
Um, so, but but there is a kind of particular twist to this question, which is that uh, the report was conveyed by means of the telegraph. And so the question that kind of very directly motivates the Irshad is... Um, what exactly do how exactly can we make sense of the telegraph? Is this a legitimate way to convey a report or are there problems with it? And there are certainly kind of complications that come out because in some ways it doesn't fit very neatly into the historical fiqhi understanding of what a what a, a report or of a transmission should be like. Um, uh, but Bakhit, for his part, answers in the affirmative. He says that it's entirely okay to accept this report and gives a number of reasons for that. Um, however, this position was actually uh, caused a bit of a stir, and people really doubted him and kind of uh, really wanted to ask questions about whether this was actually a viable option. Um, and so uh, he wrote this book as a response. But the book itself is really a kind of comprehensive dealing of a number of issues that have to do with moon sighting, that have to do with Ramadan. He takes up kind of extensive discussions uh, um, from the kind of Hanafi literature. Um, and he does so in a way that um, uh, uh, that reveals his sort of mastery of it. Um but also takes up a very specific set of questions that are very indicative of the modern period in which he finds himself, right? So even the very the very kind of challenge that motivates it is this kind of question of the telegraph. So technology sort of is a really important factor in Bakhit's thought, um, and it forces him to start to think in a more foundational way about the questions um, related to the Hanafi school. And so this book it not only answers questions kind of uh, having to do with very particular uh, issues of fiqh, but it also tries to take on some meta questions. And it, it, to a large degree, it's those meta questions that I'm interested in. Um, as to your question about the title, um, and, and I think you're right that the title sort of contains a lot. Um, so the title is Transformations of Tradition. Uh, with the subtitle of Islamic Law and Colonial Modernity. <clears throat> and what I'm sort of alluding to here and what comes out, I hope, in the introduction is that I'm writing within a context in which the idea of a tradition has uh, become more and more salient in Islamic studies. So I have here, of course, in mind um, the famous formulation of Talal Asad about Islam being seen as a discursive tradition, um, and Asad himself then relying on, <clears throat> to some degree, in some degrees relying on, in some degrees, in, in, in some instances also disagreeing with uh, Alistair McIntyre, the moral philosopher, uh, Catholic moral philosopher. Um, so tradition... I sort of is kind of emer has emerged for the past few decades as an important lens through which to understand, through which to analyze Islam, through which to make sense, let's say, of Islam, right? I think those are probably terms that I said would probably uh, uh, be more comfortable with. Um, and I think that this has been a very productive and generative way to think about the, the questions really at the heart of much of what we, uh, what we uh, uh, work with when we're working in Islamic studies. Um, for my part, though, what I found as I was working with Bakhit and I was, as I was working with the, uh, with the Irshad is that I also wanted to explore to some extent what the limits of this category 
were. Um, to what extent can we think about tradition as the kind of organizing um, uh, uh, concept um, of how, in my case, Hanafi fiqh develops? And then to what extent can we, uh, and, and then to what extent is it that this uh, concept, this lens is no longer a useful one, or at least comes up against certain, uh, certain issues. Um, now, I want to kind of draw an important distinction in advance here, which is that um, when, I say, when I'm talking about tradition, and I think one way that people have talked about tradition is to see it in very close relationship or perhaps even identical with authenticity. And so I really um, want to kind of separate these two. And I really want to say that what I'm talking about when I talk about tradition is a particular mode of inquiry that has a, a kind of particular formulation, especially in McIntyre. Um, but that has no bearing, uh, from my perspective uh, as the author, right, has no bearing on the whether or not these are authentic arguments, whether whether kind of participants in Hanafi fiqh themselves, jurists, contemporary jurists, think of these as viable arguments, as authentic arguments, as arguments that respect the Hanafi school itself. Um, like I said, I want to think about tradition apart from those considerations and to think about it as a mode of inquiry. Um, uh, and so I, so I think I do uh, some of that work in, um, I do a good amount of that work in the introduction and then in chapter two as well, um, to, to think about what it means, what are the kind of basic uh, postulates or basic assumptions that go into thinking about something as a tradition. Um, uh, and I think uh, what I find is, uh, the reconfigurations of Bakhit at the time actually spell a departure from tradition, actually signal a departure from tradition as a mode of inquiry. Again, not a comment on whether or not his arguments are authentic or not, but very much a comment on um, the particular approach, the particular meta assumptions that he takes up, the meta commitments that he takes up, and to what degree they depart from the Hanafi school before him um uh in a manner that allows us to think of this as much more of a radical change right um now a couple of maybe points i would just uh end on here um is i want to kind of uh, still maintain that there's a very real opposition between what i call in quotes traditionalist ulama and reformists like these are kind of identifiable groups in opposition to one another um in on the Egyptian scene in this period. Um, uh, so even though I want to maintain those distinctions, what I want to kind of point to is that there are nonetheless underlying conceptual overlaps between them, that there are underlying shared commitments. And those commitments is what, I, uh, what, I'm, talk, what I'm talking about when I talk about departures from tradition. Um, uh, the other thing I would say is that this is closely related to questions about the study of the ulama, uh, uh, many people are writing about the ulama now, uh, and I think this, these are kind of really vibrant discussions about how we can understand the ulama. Uh, and um, I think I am sort of situating myself in in conversation with certain key uh, writings, and I have in mind particularly uh, the work of Muhammad Qasim Zaman, but then also in the case of Egypt, Indira Falk Gessink, who writes about Islamic reform and conservatism in terms of curricular reform in, at the Azhar. Um, 
Um, for these authors, I think they're, they're, they are also interested in what we might call perhaps tradition, uh, excuse me, transformation, but they're also, inter- but maybe they might uh, prefer to call change or reform or something like that. And in their conceptualization, uh, change and reform are accomplished in a re- really careful and controlled way that that very crucially involves the participation of the ulama, right? So this is itself a response to a kind of historiography that precedes these authors that in, that tends to think about uh, the ulama as obstructionist, as the kind of foil to reform movements. And these authors are basically trying to suggest that that's not the whole story. And in fact, they these ulama that we think of as traditionalists are involved in reform in very specific ways. Um, one of the elements of this argument, um, of, of this kind of trend of thought, is to really think about the ulama to a large degree as uh, kind of conscious actors, as agents in the kind of uh, development of reform. And in my case, though, I'm interested in sort of thinking about the transformations in as much as they exceed the control of the ulama, right? So when I say transformations of tradition, I'm talking about, um, I'm really talking about a sense of a conversion from one mode of inquiry that I call tradition, which carries a specific sense of temporality, but also considers, uh, also includes relationships to other disciplines, fit related to other disciplines, and a series of fundamental uh, conceptual distinctions and principles that I think together that I would want to call tradition. Um, and I, I, what I see in Bakhit is a movement away from those. And what the, one of the things that I want to kind of point out is that movement is, is something that he that is not entirely of his own doing, that is, it kind of exceeds the control of his, uh, um, you know, admitted mastery of the of Hanafi fiqh, and yet nonetheless he's participating in larger conceptual intellectual currents that push him in certain directions over others. One of the major uh, threads, and you've already alluded to this in your answer to this first question, is the whole debate between traditionalists and reformists, and, you know, if I um, have read the project correctly, the fascinating thing that you show here is that it's precisely in the defense of traditionalism that you see a new kind of a modern episteme and, a, and, and some kind of a rupture from the tradition itself, uh, precisely in the defense of traditionalism, which is, which is a really interesting and novel argument in many ways. Um, and in the first chapter that I want to now get to is uh, you show these debates between traditionalists and reformists, especially uh, Rashid Rida. Uh, and how they invoke medieval and early modern authorities and rework them. And, you know, this is what I'll do with uh, essentially every uh, chapter, uh, is take a particular thread because there's so much happening in each chapter and then have you perhaps comment on it and expand on it. I was particularly struck on the way in which they reformulated Ibn Taymiyyah and the way they uh, engaged in that whole debate about how to think about Ibn Taymiyyah in modernity. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this uh, general theme about the traditionalist reformist debate and especially in regards to how they reformulate and rework these medieval and early modern authorities uh, as part of this contestation. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think this is uh, this is a really interesting point to kind of uh, take off on. Um, I, I guess one thing that I will, you know, I, I as you said, I've already alluded to this, right? But it's really important to sort of get a sense for the, um, and I am using these terms in in 
in sometimes in in quotes, sometimes with capitals, and so uh, these are these are contested terms. But let's use them for the sake of conversation, for the sake of discussion, right? Um, th- there is a very clear distinction between what I'm calling in quotes traditionalism, uh, traditionalists, and reformists. That is that these people are very much in the kind of social terrain of uh, Egypt in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. These people are very much different camps and opposed camps. Um, Now, the discussions between them, the debates between them, I want to say, are conducted in many ways uh, uh, through the proxy of history. Uh, That is to say that um, their particular points of reference, their particular authorities that they decide to, uh, you know, uh, look to versus those that they decide not to look up to. In each case, for both of these camps, um, says something about the nature of this kind of opposition between them. Um, And Ibn Taymiyyah uh, is actually a really uh, important and helpful point of reference. Um, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, of course, famously is is a, a 13th century uh, Damascene scholar who is known for many things. His prolific output, um, his particular novel views, uh, and then his really kind of strong opposition to what he thought were uh, um, setting up what he thought was setting up intermediaries between people and God. Right. Uh, this is a kind of you know, this is a recurring debate in Islamic history, but it's one that Ibn Taymiyyah kind of accentuated quite a bit and really railed against the idea that what that the sorts of institutions and the sorts of uh, figures uh, that that people uh, through whom people understand their Islam are actually functioning in, instead as kind of uh, obstacles between them and God, right? And and the usage of intermediaries is to kind is to participate in this kind of card no sin of shirk, right? Associating a divinity to other than God. Um, and so he he articulated that idea in a text called Al-Wasita, Bain al-Khalq wal-Haq, um, the kind of uh, uh, Al-Wasita, the kind of medium, let's say, between, um, uh, between God and people. Um, and this was uh, importantly published at the beginning of the 20th century by a series of, by a group of scholars, by a group of um, what Rashid Rida calls Fudala. So it's not quite clear what they are, but um, but presumably people who had enough wealth, enough standing to be able to participate in these intellectual debates and actually publish something based on them. Now, the re- the kind of publication of these texts isn't just, a pub- isn't just something that's done in a vacuum. It's done in a way that intervenes in the particular debates, right? So when I say that the debates between reformists and traditionalists are happening through the proxy of history, the, this kind of historical texts are being brought back to intervene in these debates. And so Really importantly, and Rashid Rida is the kind of first person that we want to point to here. For for Rida in his in his journal Al Manar, he regularly makes a point to talk about the superstitions, the khurafat of Sufism, especially, uh, but kind of a general Islamic Egyptian Islamic culture, uh, which he thinks is a kind of derogation from proper Islam. 
Um, and this is a kind of recurring theme. This comes up over and over again. And so someone like Rida would have been entirely well disposed to Ibn Taymiyyah's argumentation, whereas someone like Bakhit would have been entirely opposed to them. And in fact, he, uh, but what Bakhit does is kind of in response to this publication of Al-Wasita, he publishes himself a number of texts, the most prominent of which, a, a, a number of texts as part of one book, right, and one volume, um, the most prominent of which is a text uh, by, uh, by As-Subki, who's an important point of reference for Bakhit, a famous Shafi'i, Egyptian Shafi'i scholar. Um, and uh, what Bakhit wants to kind of get at by looking at these texts is to say that uh, is to kind of uh, counter and kind of introduce or kind of revive this uh, this concept of ulama asu, which is basically scholars of I've translated it as, I've translated it as uh, scholars of iniquity. That is, these are unreliable scholars, right? They have a lot of learning, and yet they are uh, they are kind of doing it for motives that are not entirely pure. Um, he also talks about the kind of revival of the wasita as a fitna. This is a fitna. Uh, this is a kind of, um, you know, fitna has this kind of strong negative connotation of trial uh, for the ummah that is... Um, that is being revived, even though it had been dormant in the community for so long. The revival of Ibn Taymiyyah is a revival of a certain kind of fitna. So he's, Bakhit is very interested in castigating Ibn Taymiyyah and arguing against him, and he draws on the authority of other people, like Subki, in order to make that argument. And so you already have here a kind of clear division between the kinds of authorities that each of these camps are looking to. Ridha basically writes a response to this, uh, and he defends Ibn Taymiyyah and criticizes people like Bakhit, who he thinks of as ulama at-taqlil, so basically conformist ulama, who basically have something to lose by the kind of uh, minimization of uh, of uh, this kind of culture of intermediaries, and so they're kind of interested participants and, and, and are just basically conforming to the culture. Um, now, this moment is actually a moment where I want to say, uh, but to the best of my knowledge, uh, the rivalry between these two, Bakhit and Ridha, is made most clear. Um, and it's basically a point where we can really clearly see the... Um, the the kind of distinctions between these two groups, right? And the opposition between these groups. And I would say even further, the animosity between these groups. Um, and so the animosity is even further revealed in a second text that I take up in that chapter, which is um, a fatwa on the permissibility of insurance on uh, freight that's being transported, cargo that's being transported by ship. Um, there's a kind of complicated story here, but uh, uh, Rida publishes a fatwa from a, a Singaporean mufti, and then a year later, uh, Bakhid publishes a fatwa himself uh, on the same topic. Okay, um, but I'm less interested in sort of the particulars of that argumentation as I am to sort of think about how the animosity between the two is kind of reaffirmed in this case. Okay, um, and I also want to kind of think about not just in terms of history, but that the distinction between reformists and traditionalists is also conducted on the ground of what we might call geography. Right, uh, many people have commented how reformism had this kind of global reach. Uh, many scholars have pointed this out. Right, and I what I want to add to the kind of discussion here is that opponents of reformism, those people that I'm calling traditionalists, also also worked within a global network or what I call a trans-regional network. 
right? And to go back to your point, Sharali, uh, 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 um, uh, to me, what's really interesting is that this is a uh, this. Uh, kind of uh, uh, indicates a reformulation of what the madhab is, but that sort of grouping, what I'm calling traditionalists, is actually facilitated by the infrastructure of the madhab itself. The kind of network, the sorts of expectations and protocols that of who you, who you need to engage, these bind together members of the madhab and kind of bind them together really importantly in opposition to reformism. Um, and so I have examples of key figures who Bahi draws on and key figures who he wants to uh, attribute to Ridha, again, further just kind of accentuating the division between them. We're drawing on different authorities, we're drawing on different networks, we're kind of, you know, two different intellectual formations. One of the major concepts that goes uh, throughout, runs throughout the book is uh, that of the social madhab. And I wanted you to maybe talk about that and describe that for our listeners and uh, uh, um, there again you sh- you show that uh, ways in which Bakhit challenged prevailing notions of taqlid and ishtihad uh, in the Hanafi canon but he nonetheless still operated within the discursive influence and orbit of the social madhab so I was wondering if you could also describe how he does that while yeah. uh, explaining this concept yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I th- so one thing I'll say, kind of as a preface, is that it's really important that Bakhid continues to identify with the Hanafi with Han- the Hanafi school, right? And I want to say that he transforms the Hanafi school in important ways, but nonetheless, he really wants to identify with him, uh, in part because this is a way to uh, to distinguish himself from the reformists, right? Um, so the social madhab is basically. I mean, this is not a term that I find in the text that I'm looking at, but it's really something that I use to kind of try to capture my understanding of what's happening in the period. And what I want to do with it is to sort of draw attention to well, the sociality, the sociality of the Hanafi school, or um, you know, maybe to use other language that uh, kind of draw attention to the fact that the madhab is a corporate uh, entity, that it's something that. Um, you know, many people are participating in. Um, uh, so it's corporate in terms of, you know, belonging to a kind of long tradition of learning and praxis, but also it means a strong emphasis on recent scholars and texts, right? And this is a way to sign a kind of consolidate the identity of the madhab and to unify it into a, a, an integral unit. Um, but the thing that I want to point out and that you sort of uh, uh, suggested already is that this feature of the madhab, the sociality of the madhab, always existed, right? This kind of network that people were expected to read and respond to um, uh, others, especially in the kind of later period of Islamic history, uh, is really important. Right, um, because of course there are Hanafis in Central Asia, there are Hanafis in in Turkey, there are Hanafis in South Asia, there are Hanafis all over the place, and so it is kind of uh, it, it, and so the kind of um, it, it's important to kind of bring those different things together and to uh, and to really uh, lean on the importance of recent scholars, recent texts, or contemporaries, perhaps even. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh, so, but what I want to say is that this feature of the madhab, even though it always existed, takes on an increased salience uh, when, in fact, the other ideas of the madhab are uh, are on the wane. Uh, 
And when I say other ideas, I have in mind what people usually think about when they think about the madhab. That is the madhab as a kind of uh, juristic school, a regime of interpretation, a regime of hermeneutics that constrain and structure and uh, permit departures from Hanafi thinking in a way that is uh, that, that that is kind of very formalized by this point. Um, the kind of cumulative corpus of learning that people are expected to grapple with in order to really be seen as kind of taking the madhab seriously. What I want to say is that with Bakhid, that notion, that kind of regime of interpretation is actually turned on its head. And yet he does that by drawing on the social madhab itself, drawing on the protocol, so that he does so by basically drawing on two key figures that I talk about in this um, in this uh, chapter. This is Abdul Hay al-Laknawi, who's a famous South Asian uh, um, uh, jurist and Hadith scholar, and Shihab al-Din al-Marjani, who's a Tatar uh, uh, from the city of Kazan, who's an important jurist, an important thinker within that context especially, but but is really read uh, more widely as well. Um, so, um, so in doing so, what he's doing is kind of respecting the expectation that one needs to uh, that one needs to grapple with uh, the Hanafi school by reference to recent scholars. Both of these scholars die in the 1880s, right? This is when Bakhit is, is, is you know is you know about 30 or so, um, and so. Uh, um, so it's so it's important that that he kind of draws on them, and that's the sort of important feature that I want to draw attention to. Um, but to say a little bit more about the sort of waning of the interpretive, right? Um, uh, the interpretive kind of facet of the school. Um, this is accomplished by talking about uh, the increased importance of ijtihad and the downplaying of taqlid. Now, people who know the historiography of this period know very well that these are ideas that are t- typically associated with reformists. And yet what you find in the Irshad is in fact a really strong importance on ijtihad and a downplaying of taqlid in a way that is very reminiscent of uh, of um of uh, the reformists, right? Uh, it's uh, a lot of this is about stressing foundational texts in early generations, right? Quran, Sunnah, but then in the case of Bukhit, also early Hanafism, um, and privileging that over a kind of accumulated heritage of scholarship that was more kind of squarely associated with the Madhab in the medieval period. Um, so uh, I, um, that that sort of element of the story is actually a kind of reworking of the madhab, I want to say, right? Or a transformation of the madhab. But importantly, again, it's done by reference to this kind of uh, set of protocols or set of set of methods that are part and parcel of the madhab, as long as we sort of, you know, look in a kind of different place for, the, for it. Um, I will say maybe, um, uh, uh, so... Uh, so what this allows Bakhid to do is to basically chart a course into the modern that maintains his distance from uh, from the reformists, right? That's an important kind of distinguishing marker that he really wants to draw out. Um, and I will say a little bit more about uh, Lucknowi and Marjani. Like these are these are kind of really interesting figures. And what I want to suggest is that they're interesting figures who are operating within a specific context in which their own 
valorization of ijtihad has a particular meaning in South Asia and then in in Russia, uh, that these have particular meanings. uh, And Bakhit, what he's doing is appropriating them into a new context, that he's he's drawing on the protocols of the social madhab and then lodging this critique of taqlid and this valorization of ijtihad within the kind of Hanafi Azhari establishment in Egypt by, and in fact, uh, intensifying some of their insights so that you see a much more robust notion of a historical consciousness in Bakhit that that is present to some extent in the other two, but not to the same extent. Um, um, so this this sort of historical consciousness in which he has a very clear sense that the modern period in which he lives is specific and different and cannot be easily uh, equated to what comes before. Right, and he has kind of very uh, evocative language to talk about this. He talks about uh, uh, the word uh, the word that's used is the jadud, which whose kind of primary meaning is the cutting off of the udder of an animal, which is uh, which is to say that the kind of normal flow of history, the normal flow of history that really informed the madhab up until this point, is no longer flowing into the uh, the, the present day. Okay, so there's a kind of very strong historical consciousness in which the modern period is marked off and, and has to be understood by reference to the original, originary periods of Islam rather than the kind of intervening history. So I think what I will do is I'll skip a chapter, uh, Janet, then come back to chapter three and club it with chapter five and go to uh, chapter four here and uh, uh, ask you this very about this very interesting um transition that you talk about from what you call uh, procedural integrity to epistemological criteria. And basically here in this chapter, you're looking at how Bakhit engages with the question of astronomy and how he engages earlier Hanafi methods and precedents. And you show that, as you show throughout the book, that while showing his normative fidelity to the Hanafi canon, he's also reworking it in some very fundamental and perhaps even radical ways. Um, so I was wondering, through this example of how he engages with the question of astronomy, what is this shift uh, from procedural integrity to epistemological criteria, which is so crucial to what you do? Yeah, uh, so uh, so um, the primary case that I take up in this chapter is really about whether or not one can um, rely on astronomical calculations in order to uh, declared the month of Ramadan, or in fact any month for that matter. Uh, but the month of Ramadan is actually the actually the key one here. Actually, I should say. Um, and so that's this is a discussion that has a bit of a long history, um, and many people, you know, the dominant position is that uh, one cannot rely on them. Uh, and though there have been these kind of anomalous opinions here and there that make some room for relying on astronomical calculations. Now, this is in some ways um, also drawing upon the work uh, in uh, the history of Islamic astronomy, which um, which basically uh, in, in many cases have in mind the work of David King, for example, draws a strong distinction between um, scientific methods and folk methods. That's one way to draw the distinction. Um, I tend to think about it, as you said, between uh, procedure and, and something like uh, epistemology. Um, uh, uh, and but but the t- the words that are used in the text itself, uh, in the Hanafi texts, I should say in general, uh, are ru'ya and ilm. So ru'ya is basically a sighting, right? And ilm is basically you know translated as knowledge. Um, and so 
why is the citing an example of procedure? Well, it's because there's a very clear hadith that says that one should fast upon citing the new moon and break their fast, that is at the end of the month of Ramadan, break their fast upon citing it, right? So there's a very clear procedure. There's a very clear method baked into the hadith and really then baked into the fiqh as a result, right? And people were very reticent, Hanafi jurists were typically very reticent to to, uh, depart from that from that uh, position. Um, uh, one way that this was discussed is, um, so in a, in a figure like Ibn Abidin, who's like dies in the early, in early 19th century, um, is to, is to, is in terms of this distinction between ru'ya on the one hand, and what I'm calling procedure basically, and ilm on the other hand, which is knowledge, that is knowledge of the existence, uh, the knowledge of the existence of the new moon, basically. The knowledge that is that there has been a conjunction and separation that, uh, that marks a new lunar month. Um, for someone like Ibn Abidin, um, he has a very interesting take, and it's one that's probably counterintuitive to us now, looking back at it, in, you know, from the 21st century. Um, but for him, the ru'ya, the uh, the sighting, the following of a procedure that demands a sighting, is actually um, it actually furnishes us with certain knowledge. Whereas this uh, the kind of computations of the astronomers only give us gives us probable knowledge. Uh, and he's very kind of adamant about that, right? That 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 sci- that this sort of these scientific approaches don't um, these astronomical computations don't allow us access to a world that we can speak of with with, with certainty. So there's a certain kind of downplaying of science here, observation being certain, scientific calculation, astronomical calculation being only probable. Now, what Bakhit does is he actually reverses this equation. So this is a very clear case in which he reverses. So for him, um, Ru'ya is not uh, discarded. It's still a possible way to judge the validity or the legitimacy of the onset of the new month. Um, nonetheless, Ilm is also possible. And in fact, in some ways, I think there are some passages in him that we can read as him saying that it's preferable. Um, that it provides us with a greater degree of certainty, yes, a greater degree of uh, precision, whereas observation is subject to error. He records the case of many people kind of going out of their way to say that they've cited the new moon because they think it's an act of piety, but but in fact, they, there is no way that they could have seen the new moon. Um, so, um, so Ilm sort of takes a much more important knowledge takes a much more important. But what what's really important here is that Ilm by this point has a kind of connotation of science as well, right? Um, so the I, the knowledge that he has in mind is scientific knowledge. So Ilm, the word Ilm is often used also to talk about uh, science or the Ulum, the sciences. And so when he talks about Ilm now, uh, there is this kind of clear tinge uh, that what he means here is also scientific knowledge. And this is done in a kind of really interesting way. Um, he takes up this verse in the Quran that says that one, when one witnesses the month, and the word used is shahida, witness, uh, uh, they should fast. Um, now, historically, that had been seen in terms of witnessing in the sense of observing or witnessing in the sense of offering a testimony in court uh, in front of a judge. Right, uh, but for Bakhit, actually, to witness the month is to sort of 
witness it in the sense he glosses it as to know of its existence, ilm, uh, to have ilm of its existence. Um, and so this reveals a kind of confidence in astronomical knowledge as reliable that we don't see in the prevailing tradition. Um, and I want to kind of in this chapter push a little bit further and so start to think about why he would make this change. What is it about what's happening around him um, that that kind of portends as a, a deeper uh, uh, epistemological shift that then results in this kind of argumentation? Um, and there's a kind of uh, a, a kind of few things we should say. Uh, number one is there's a kind of increasing prestige of science and in particular astronomy in this period, right? Astronomy is being taught in kind of new institutions like Cairo University. It's being written about by Orientalists. Uh, and there's a kind of ascendancy of scientism. Um, so that's a kind of part of the story. The, uh, another part of the story, though, that I want to draw a little bit of attention to is uh, that um, a strong emphasis on objectivity that you find in Bahit that you don't find in other people. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of a complicated argument, but it's an argument in which um, he gives us a kind of thought experiment. In fact, it's not a thought experiment. In fact, it's a, it's a kind of extreme case, a boundary case of uh, lands uh, in extreme latitudes, especially in the extreme north, where you know, um, the sun and the, 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 the sun setting and the sun rising doesn't happen in a kind of 24 hour period, right? What, what happens is that, um, the sun is, uh, absent for many uh, months at a time and is then present for many months at a time. Right. Um, and he wants to say, look, if we're going to rely on the, on, on these kind of, these kind of cosmological indicators, uh, we're not going to be able to fast in some cases, or we're not going to be able to break our fast in other cases. Right. And so he wants to say, like, those cosmological indicators, that sighting of the new moon is only something that that is made that is made permissible by God in order to say, in order to kind of guide a whole community that might not have been literate. Um, uh, But the truth is that what the proper uh, uh, um, measure of whether or not one should pray at a specific time or fast at a specific time is this kind of um, realm of time, this kind of objective realm that's independent of the observer uh, and to which these cosmological signs are just markers. Um, and this is linked to something that I take up in the previous chapter, which is Bakhit's affirmation of the heliocentricity of the world, right? So his kind of notion of objectivity is linked to the, the kind of... Uh, our modern understanding of the solar system um, and ritual worship then is now linked to time, which is linked to the orbits. And these are all kind of objective measures, right? And that structure of the world for Bakhit can be known by science. Um, and so that's uh, really kind of an important element of how, what he means when he talks about it. Um, the other aspect of this that I might want to draw attention to is the introduction of new technology. So we've already talked a little bit about the telegraph. Also, the telescope is a really important component of this. Um, and the, the existence of the telescope, I, I want to argue, uh, pushes people into certain directions that are much more scientific uh, and starts allows them to think about the structure of the world in a way that is slightly different. Um, so viewing things through the telescope is a kind of act in which one perceives the reality of the world, the object world, um, and then that that reality is kind of represented in the person themselves, the individual. Um, 
and so this is a kind of process that I call representationalism. I mean, following others, I call representationalism. And the upshot, though, is that basically these developments in Egypt, the emergence and the ascendancy of science and the introduction of new technologies push Bakhi to think about this question in a different way that gives him uh, a certain, that, that he thinks gives him certain knowledge through a proper representation of an objective reality. That's a great uh, segue for my next question, where I actually want to club together uh, chapters three and five to talk about a major theme that I think animates the latter half of this book, which has to do with the interaction of um, colonial conditions or the conditions of um, uh, 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 modern secularity uh, and, I guess, what one might call um, uh, tr- Muslim traditionalist thought in, in modernity with the example of uh, Bakhir. So I was wondering, when we take these different case studies to do with astronomy or the telescope or the telegraph, which you talk about in the last chapter, um, what are some of the ways in which we see a certain kind of a modern secular conception of religion uh, entering into the thought of a scholar like Bakhit? Uh, and how uh, do we see some reworkings of uh, uh, prevalent notions in uh, Hanafi law, for example, distinctions between the religious and the worldly, etc.? Uh, but how are they reworked in a way that seem to almost mirror a certain uh, modern secular notion of religion? And what I found really exciting and interesting, what you do uh, in both these chapters, and uh, I'll just take the example of chapter five, is that you show that precisely in defending the tradition against the threat of uh, you know modernists or reformists, etc., um, on different questions to do with the caliphate, uh, it's precisely in the mode of defending traditionalism that a certain modern colonial episteme of religion gets incorporated and uh, assimilated into a traditionalist uh, 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 framework, uh, which I thought was a very interesting argument. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I'll, 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 I'll have you articulate more. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll start with um, the discussion of the telegraph. This is this is chapter five that you refer to. Um <clears throat> Uh, so this is a pretty kind of involved legal discussion. I'm going to do my best to to sort of make it accessible here, uh, but, and I, but I, I hope I can I can do that. Um, now. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the kind of sighting of the Ramadan new moon. The sighting of the Ramadan new moon and its sort of presentation before a court, before a judge, or its transmission among different places uh, 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 is thought to be, uh, an, an, you know, the term that uh, is... Uh, uh, the term that is used to kind of class this, the Ramadan new moon sighting is the uh, umur diniya. This is what I translate as religious matters. And the umur diniya are this kind of really kind of specific to Hanafism for the most part, um, although there are elements of it in other madhabs, but, but really kind of theorized in a way in the Han- among the Hanafis that's really interesting, but also raises lots of questions. The umur diniya is really something that lives in between another distinction. Uh, a kind of distinction of two distinct modes of, of reports. One is a khabar, a narration or, or a report sometimes uh, can be translated as, and on the other hand, a testimony. Now, these were these had their own conditions. These had their own kind of uh, expectations about what constituted a legitimate khabar or what constituted a legitimate shahada, legitimate narration or legitimate testimony. What's interesting about the umur diniya is that the way they're conceptualized is that they exist between these two. Uh, and actually not only between them, but they're a hybrid of them. That is, they contain elements of the, of the narration and they contain elements of testimony. 
that says, I think, something about how the Ramadan moon sighting was was uh, was envisioned, right? That it contained elements of both. Um, and so what we find in the kind of earlier Hanafi tradition, the, uh, earlier than Bakhit, that is, is uh, a, a kind of idea about um, the Ramadan new moon sighting, which really tended to emphasize its being a narration, but always insisted um, on its being uh, uh, kind of transmitted and 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 uh, streamlined through the oversight of judges. So this goes back to the, our kind of discussion of uh, 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 of proceduralism a bit, um, right? This kind of clear idea that there is a very clear method which needs to be followed, right? A certain number of witnesses who testify in front of a judge, and then if that report is being transmitted to someone else. Again, a certain number of witnesses that testify that the first judge had pronounced on this case, et cetera, et cetera. A kind of, a kind of not a very complicated, but a very um, rigid sort of procedure um, that, rec- that distinguishes between a recognized transmission and one that is just simply an account, which has no kind of legal bearing. Um, and so the Ramadan moon sighting really fell into this, this characterization. Right, uh, the Ramadan moon sighting ha- had to be kind of uh, streamlined and, and conveyed through through the oversight and the authority of judges, and had to be structured through testimonies before judges. Um, what I want to argue is that Bakhit is actually uh, is actually changing this process and is really minimizing that procedure once again. And here again, he's epistemologizing. This is the kind of term that I use in the text, right? He's kind of making it into an epistemological uh, issue, but he's also individualizing a little bit, right? So Bakhit's basic move is to uh, kind of sever any links of the Ramadan moon sighting to this category of testimony, this category of shahada. And he wants to say, basically, that it's nothing but a khabar. It's nothing but a report, the best examples of which are hadith from the Prophet, and so, um, which have their own sort of method of judging whether or not something is true. And so for, for Bakhit, what obliges action, what obligates action, is not a kind of carefully delineated procedure that used to be required by earlier Hanafis, but what's really central to him is the epistemic value of the report, or the truth of the content of the report, right? Now, really importantly, this truth can be gained outside of the oversight of the courts, independently of the courts altogether. Um, It can be circulated among individual minds. And I think that this is a really kind of important move because I think what it does is it's the, the reason he's able to make this argument is because he leans very heavily on the characterization, on the categorization of these Ramadan moon sightings as umur diniya, as religious matters, and reads religion then in a way that emphasizes the abstractness, um, the immateriality, the ability to kind of be exchanged between between individual minds, which is really a departure from the from the kind of um, embodied, if you will, uh, 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 um, or or material uh, uh, manifestation of what the 
properly obligating procedure would have been through the courts and so on. So there's a kind of existence outside of the courts that is valorized here in Bakhit, which is which is actually very important for him to downplay um, the the importance of the courts to assimilate the, the Ramadan moon citing to a typical report, and then to kind of do so by relying on a kind of particular conception of religion, um, which, uh, I mean, many scholars have already pointed to, right, which is kind of draws on a distinction between uh, religion and a kind of material embodied world. Right, that's a kind of uh, uh, modern. I want to say modern distinction that thinks of a religion as abstract and uh, as kind of separate from the world. Um, so, and go back to maybe to think a little bit more about the end of your question, and this is you know drawing from chapter three now. Um, this kind of idea about about his relationship to colonialism is something that actually really fascinated me. Um, and I have a lot to say about it, but I'll try to be as as, as succinct as possible. Um, what's really important, and to me, the, where this really comes out most clearly is his attitude toward astronomy. We've seen a bit of that already, um, but a particular attitude toward astronomy that I want to stress here. Um, and so it's really his kind of take uh, on that. And so um, it's important to note that Bakhit was often criticized by his opponents for being for having a lack of conversance with modern sciences, whether it be geography or astronomy or whatever. Um, and we see that in his library attempts to remedy that, that kind of deficiency, right? So people like Riva, who really stressed uh, science, people like Hussein al-Jisr, who wrote a text about uh, about science and uh, tried to kind of create curricula uh, um, that made room for science, right? These people in some ways are seen as, uh, well, can be seen, Rida in particular can be seen as an opponent of Bakhit who wants to stress his lack of conversance with those sciences, and Bakhit is attempting to remedy that. Um, we're really talking about, I really want to focus in on the case of astronomy. So we see a number of astronomical texts in his in his library, including from medieval authors. But the one I want to kind of draw most attention to is something called the Principles of Astronomy, Usul il Malhaya, which is written by a Dutch-American professor um, at the Syrian Protestant College in Beirut uh, named Cornelius van Dyck. Now, Van Dyck was a professor of astronomy. He was also really interestingly a translator of, a, of an influential translation of the Bible into Arabic. Um, uh, um, uh, but it is in his kind of capacity of his professor, uh, in his capacity as a professor of astronomy, that he writes this text. And at the beginning of this text, he kind of leads off with a history of science that is pretty recognizable to anyone today, I think, right? Which kind of makes, uh, which talks about a kind of dominance of a Ptolemaic paradigm, which is then overcome uh, in kind of triumphalist fashion by figures like Copernicus and Galileo and so on. Now, this is a really important, it's really kind of telling that he leads with this history because as people like Marwa Shakri have pointed out, um, the kind of importance of a history of science is very crucial to the advent of scientism. Um, now, what's very interesting is that Bakhit also writes about astronomy. Now, he writes in a context in which he's attempting very clearly to harmonize between 
scripture, hadith, Quran, and 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 this new astronomy, this new science that he's encountering. Um, this is a kind of genre of literature that really came out that, again, Marwa Shakri really takes up at length, um, called tafsir ilmi, scientific, again, that word ilm kind of figures in here, right? Scientific exegesis, if you will, scientific tafsir of the Quran. Uh, and Bakhit is very much a, a participant in this trend of writing, but he does so in a way um, that, uh, introduces something that uh, is really kind of quite important, and that is he cribs from, he basically copies from Cornelius van Dyck, a specific history of science, that very specific history of science, with some certain modifications. He wants to say that, yes, Ptolemy was dominant, and uh, but at the same time, there was a, a minority tradition from the ancient Greeks represented by Pythagoras, which more closely resembled our heliocentric model that we now attribute to Copernicus and Galileo and others, modern astronomers. That tradition died out in Europe, but it continued to function um, uh, in in Islam, especially through the texts of Islamic theology, through Islamic kalam. Okay, so this this is a really interesting move, right? Um, he also wants to talk about how Arabs are involved as ancient participants in astronomy, but I really want to focus in on this sort of his his idea that this tradition, this Pythagorean tradition, continues in Kalam, and so when Copernicus and Galileo come to the into the equation, they're not doing anything that's new. They're basically saying something that we've already always known. So, I mean, I find this a very interesting move. Um, I find it interesting to me because I think it says something about his relationship uh, uh, to Europe. You know, one way to read this could have been that he's just basically derivative and then finding room uh, for uh, he's just being derivative and then finding room for Arabs and Muslims in in the story, right? Um, but I think there's something more interesting going on here because what he's doing basically is uh, aff- uh, affirming Van Dyke's kind of really teleological account, teleological account of modern science as the culmination, um, but he does it in a way that indigenizes it. Now, so I want to kind of think a little bit about what goes on, what what is involved, what is implicated in this attempt at indigenization. I want to think about like what is it that he's doing um, that allows us to understand the relationship to colonial power in a way that um, in a way that doesn't just simply think about like um, things that uh, that other people have pointed to, uh, like uh, biographers of his have pointed to, as like he writes fatwas, for example, that are uh, uh, that are can be read as uh, as. Um, as uh, supportive of colonial power or that he conducts his own family life in a way that represents the kind of mannerisms of Europe, etc., right? But I also wanted to think about the, the particular ideas themselves. And to do this, I, I found really helpful the work of um, Shadin Tagedin, who's a, who's a literary theorist who writes about Egypt um, and uh, conceptualizes cultural imperialism in a very particular way. And I, I think what I want to kind of point to is that Bakhit is actually participating in a European narrative, but he's doing it in terms that um, can also make room for a separate and sovereign Arab Islamic identity, Arab Islamic civilization. For Tagadine, um, cultural imperialism basically functions in a way that 
invites the colonized to seek power, not against empire, not as a rebellion against empire, but to seek through empire. And she sort of theorizes this in, uh, by looking at a, a, a you know an import, a kind of interesting selection of texts, uh, in which she thinks uh, that what's at play here is what she calls a seduction, a translational seduction. She actually says, but what is it? Why is it a seduction? Because what it does is it invites the Arab Muslim in this case, the colonized, to understand colonialism, to understand colonial power. <clears throat> as an aspirational version of oneself, right? As something that we could be, that is, recognizes, that affirms, something that authorizes the Arab Islamic identity because it says that we may not be these people, we're different than these people, but nonetheless, what they do kind of affirms and authorizes our own uh, kind of cultural roots or civilizational roots, right? Um, so this is a, to, to, to Tagadine, this is a kind of seduction, a seduction of recognition. It invites people to participate in kind of the architecture of colonial discourse by recognizing themselves as an element in it. Right. In some ways, this places their Islamic civilization on an equal footing or a, a commensurable footing with Europe, um, but it does so in a way that maintains the sovereignty. Right. That this kalam tradition, for example, is something that Bakhid can point to uh, very identifiably. Um, uh, but it also promises the possibility, uh, thinking of these two civilizations as translatable equals. Okay, there is a difference. That difference is really kind of fundamental to the colonial uh, discourse. Nonetheless, there's an opportunity for people to participate in the colonial discourse by envisioning themselves as an equal, a translatable equal to the dominant Euro kind of centric narrative, right? So the dominant Eurocentric narrative of someone like Van Dyck. Um, allows, you know, is taken up by Bakhit, but allows him, or rather he carves out a space for this kind of Arab Islamic civilization, this Arab Islamic part of the narrative, um, uh, which, which you know, seamlessly sort of inserts it into that, that Eurocentric narrative, right? So in, in some ways that authorizes, that really proclaims on the legitimacy because it fits well into that particular mode. And so... Um, when Bakhit is writing this history, right, he's just cribbing from Van Dyck, but I want to say that he's also making important interpolations which uh, really indigenize the history of science uh, and translate it into an Arab-Islamic idiom. Uh, and I think what comes out of that is that then he is seen less as a kind of obstacle or a, a kind uh, someone who's immune to the demands of colonial discourse or an obstacle to colonial modernity, but rather he's actually a participant or co-author of this colonial discourse. He's actually participating in it in a way that is that is uh, kind of much deeper than if we just simply think of what he's doing as a derivative account of what's happening in, uh, in Van Dyke. So, Junaid, as we're coming uh, to the um, end of our time, I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners what's uh, the next project, what you're working on these days. Yeah, uh, 
Well, so I have a, probably a number of inchoate ideas at this point, uh, just because uh, uh, just uh, kind of still recovering from having from having written this book. Um, and but actually, I, I kind of uh, want to take this as an opportunity. To, I have taken it, I should say, as an opportunity to really connect with other fields, other other kind of fields that broadly make up Islamic studies. Um, and uh, try to go back and do some reading in those fields. Um, the, the ideas I have for projects, though, I have a couple that I maybe can share with you, um, really in some way or other draw on my previous work. So, I mean, I'm really interested in kind of pursuing to a lar- uh, to you know pursuing more this kind of period of the late 19th and early 20th century, um, Hanafism, and really trying to think about it from a slightly different angle, a related but slightly different angle, and to think about how hadith comes to be much more a prominent element of Hanafi scholars thinking, how how Hanafi scholars start to write hadith commentaries, and some work has, has certainly been done on this, right? But I think there's a lot more that can be done, and I think it says some interesting things about the development of Hanafism as a madhab um, that the kinds of people that we today associate with it, especially in South Asia, but also figure figures uh, in the Arab world uh, and elsewhere, uh, in which hadith is a kind of much more prominent and, uh, you know, in some ways, um, uh, a much more prominent feature in ways that that um, it may not have been before. So that's one project. And the other project kind of drives from uh, not so much the book, but an article I wrote uh, in Islamic Law and Society in which I'm really trying, in which I was really basically trying to understand, um, in general terms, understand the relationship between fiqh on the one hand and ethics on the other hand. And, and this is a kind of old debate in, this, in Islamic law. But I wanted to understand it in a way that really stresses the overlaps and the commonalities of these two disciplines, which are two typically dealt with individually as kind of, you know, hermetically sealed off disciplines. But I want to think of them as kind of part of a larger normativity, which also includes things like Sufism, also includes things like poetry. Uh, and we can think about lots of other, I think, genres as well, which which kind of sketch out a kind of norm- normativity in which we see points of cross-fertilization and overlap between these two different disciplines. And so uh, to see how these come together, I would be interested, I mean, As I said, I did a bit of that work in the article itself, but I really would be interested in trying to explore that a little bit further, investigate and see where it goes. Transformations of Tradition, Islamic Law in Colonial Modernity by Professor Junaid Qadri, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. In fact, just perhaps this week. Uh, thank you so much, Junaid, for this really fascinating and important uh, book, which I'm sure will spark conversations and uh, debates among scholars from multiple fields. And thank you for so generously sharing your insights about this book uh, in this conversation. I'm sure our listeners really benefited from it and learned uh, a lot from it. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. So this was my conversation with Professor Junaid Kadri about his wonderful new book, Transformations of Tradition. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Bye.